Good afternoon, Yuval Adler. Welcome on VH Berries. Good afternoon, Victor. So nice to be here. I am extremely grateful. How are you doing today in New York City? Um, uh, it's actually a very nice day in New York City today. It's, it's the beginning. It's not fall yet, but it's, it feels like it's a cold. It's not hot. It's very nice, uh, a little chillier than usual, sunny. So I was outside and it was, it's, it's a great day. So um, not all days in New York are like that, but today is one of those. It is one of those, Yuval Adler. A perfect match between hot and cold. And I also find that your art is a match between philosophy and filmmaking, a match that is probably as intense as the tennis match that you watched last <laughs> Saturday between Coco Gauff and Arena Sabalenka. Exactly. We were talking. <laughs> We were trying to talk about the podcast and then it was during the match and I couldn't concentrate. I was like, I need to run. I, you know, I heard people screaming and all that stuff. So yes, it was an amazing match. I'm still, everybody's still reading from it. Um, yeah, I mean, um, my path into filmmaking was not straight like I always knew I want to make film but I actually first uh, had an academic career of sorts I studied math and physics for many years and then philosophy and then and I'm still in you know engaged in philosophy sometimes I teach sometimes I'm still in some you know sometimes I publish I I it's hard for me to articulate exactly the relation between philosophy and film for me other than the fact that um in both of them, there's something about looking and trying to make sense of things, I think. Which I don't feel I still did in film. I'm, I feel I'm just beginning. I feel I'm just setting up to do my big thing. Like everything I did, I'm like, oh, that's not it yet. Like, wait, I'm still working on the real thing. You know what I mean? Like, that's just um, warming up. I'm just learning the craft, you know. Um, the next one is going to be the, you know. Um, so yeah, so I did, um, I, I, you know, when I, in, when I, in my twenties, I was, um, uh, I came to New York to do a PhD in philosophy. I did art with an, uh, you know, my, one of my professors was an artist named Judy Pfaff and, um, um, and she kind of introduced me to the art world in New York and I was, uh, in shows and I did uh, sculpture and video art and, and, and kind of film came after all that in my 30s and all the things that I did in my 20s um, you know I did again you know math philosophy art they came very easy for me and then in my 30s I kind of hit the wall and I thought uh, when I started making trying to make film everything went was hard and everything didn't work and everything was the disaster I tried to write, I wrote shit scripts, everything. It took me time to understand what I'm doing and how to do things. And then uh, it's funny because now I'm a writer. Now I wake up in the morning at 6 a.m. every day or whatever, 5 sometimes, and I write for 4 or 5 hours and that's the heart of my day. And that's the thing that was hardest for me to learn, you know, to become a writer. 
So life is funny that way. You know, you're good at certain things, things go easy, and then the one thing that's kind of hard, um, that might become what you do in your life. You know what I mean? Absolutely, Yuval Adler. And this focus that you had uh, for philosophy also, as you just mentioned, applied to a cluster of interests and in addition of philosophy, you were very good in metaphysics, mathematics, but also calculus and also, which is very interesting, sculpture. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? Um, yeah, I mean, kind of that was always my, maybe my virtue and my, maybe my fatal flaw that I was kind of good in many things, but maybe not good enough. I don't know yet. I hope I'm good enough. Uh, I was kind of bulimically, um, how should I say it? Like there was, when I was young, again, in my late teens, early twenties, I had this bulimic urge to do everything, to know everything. Somebody said that philosophy is the urge to be at home in the world everywhere. I think it's Novalis or something, some romantic. And the idea is that um, um, you want to you wanna do everything. Uh, you know, you want to, I think Lacan said, you want to be the entire symbolic order for mommy. I don't know what, but you want to do everything. I had that and I didn't have a focus to say, focus on that. This is what's important. I was like, oh, let's do this and let's do this. And I'm fascinated by this. And all the things that I did, I did very kind of in a dramatic way in my life. It wasn't like a hobby. You know, when I was a sculptor in my 20s, I was one of the young sculptors that was in shows in New York. But you know what I mean? Like I did it. I was in that world. But it kind of burned out very quickly. All the other, like the math thing, you know, I did math seriously for a period. But I, and, and but it was all kind of like just to, exp as if like I, again, there was a bulimia of youth. Like I can eat and do anything. And then... It kind of blew, blew in my face in the, my late 20s and my early 30s that I realized I'm kind of everywhere and nowhere. And then when I started to focus on writing film and trying to write film and get into film, and I didn't know anybody in film, you know, I didn't know anybody because I didn't go to school and, you know, I didn't go to film school. So I didn't know anybody. I was in New York. I didn't know anybody. And, and it was very, very, very hard. And suddenly everything that was easy in my 20s became a kind of a nightmare in my 30s. Um, and then, but I did go and study acting. That's something that worked that actually really, I think that taught me writing. Like if you, acting is a very good training for writers because you, um, you do what, um, I'm all over the place here, but whatever you do, what, uh, the same thing, kind of actors and writer, you, you think of things from the perspective of the character you know, and you, and, and actually doing scenes, I was studying at the Strasbourg Theatre Institute uh, for a couple of years, doing scenes and whatever, and I wasn't a good actor at all. Um, but, and nobody, I didn't let anybody see me act except for my, the people I did the acting with, but doing scenes really taught me to write and also later to direct actors because I kind of understood much better their process. Uh, so, so yeah, up to, you know, so my life was like, you know, let's do everything. And then 
yeah at some point you understand that life is finite and you have to concentrate your energy on one thing and this transition was very painful and it took me time but eventually and I still don't feel it's over like I'm still in film I'm still feeling that you know not like I'm learning from every film kind of cliche I'm saying I'm really still learning something about how to make film and trying to understand how to make the film I want to make which I didn't make it all these films that I made are like it's just warm it's like yes I tried this 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 but I mean each one is its own story and I kind of you know but but I still feel that I'm not who I'm supposed to be like I'm still not making the films I'm supposed to make and it's weird it's a weird feeling that it's like it's still a process you know if I understood correctly Yuval Adler at the end of the day you have to pick one card yes. and this card yes. is probably the ace of spades <laughs> yeah exactly that's what uh, <laughs> that's what i learned from nick cage on uh, on sympathy for the devil <laughs> he came up with this thing he was like he was like uh let me tell you something that happened to me i was this guy and i was in a parking lot and this guy came to me and he said pick a card you know and he did the same thing and he said I knew the card you're gonna pick and he showed him the card and he said let's do it I didn't and I like this idea a lot I didn't know what it means I still don't but it's something that you know it's so weird and kind of goes with this kind of performer persona that he adopted for that film but yeah I didn't connect it to my life but yeah you have to pick a card and I you know it took me until I was probably 30 or 31 to understand that you have to fucking pick a card. Yes, good point, Victor. <laughs> I would love to discuss to about that feature film that was released recently and directed by you, a movie called Sympathy for the Devil. Can you tell us a little bit more about it and about the story of that piece of art? Yeah, this film was, uh, it was a great, um, it, like, it, it, I was very lucky that it happened, but also in some ways I made it happen in a way that's not typical for me or in general. What happened was um, that after Bethlehem was released in t t 2013, 10 years ago, um, uh, there's a period I was kind of, I had a moment in Hollywood where, you know, your agent sent you everywhere and they send you scripts and whatever. And I actually, I think in 2014, and I did it for a year or two and then I stopped. In 2014, I read this script and I really liked it, Sympathy for the Devil. It's kind of a simple genre B film, you know, but I saw that there's a possibility for a great performance. And... And the producers didn't want to let me do like I pitched it you know you get a script and you pitch it they the producer have the script they have a bunch of director pitch it to them and then they choose the director they didn't choose me they choose somebody else in 2014 and I was um, and then in 2016 or 17 I remember I, you know you look at IMDB oh they didn't make the movie why not I send them an email what about the movie are you making it and they're like yeah no it's the turnaround we're waiting blah 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 and then I asked again in 2019 and again in 2021 and in 2021, they suddenly answered, or even in 2022, they answered, no, 2021, they answered that they, they lost the right. They lost the, the right to the screenplay. 
And I was like, really? How interesting. I was, you know, very happy to hear that. So I immediately called the writer and I convinced him to sell me the right. You know what I mean? Like he sold the right to me directly. Like I still, I kind of convinced him that a director will make the film, that I have a different interest <laughs> than a producer. Producer more wants to make money. I'm a director. I will make it even for zero budget. You know what I mean? I could, and, and they gave me a year and they gave me a year option. And even my manager was like, what can you do with a year option? You know what I mean? Like you it takes years to make a film. And I still bought it. It was to, at the end of the pandemic. It's very strange. I actually paid for my money for a thing. And then my manager, who is like amazing, he actually started putting it together. He got it to some producers. And, and then something was that was very lucky. There was some phone call where the, the, the producer learned that, Nick, uh, that uh, Joel Kinnaman is available. And Joel, I made a film with him in 2018, 19, and we had a relationship. And he said, oh, Joel would, like to, would love to work with you, Val. Send, send it over. And then it's the same guy who's Nick's agent. And he said, well, Nick is available, but, you know, let's see if blah, blah, blah. So this whole thing suddenly came together in like three months, you know, which is kind of a miracle. Like films take years and years, just like the other producer set with a film for eight, with the same script for eight years. Okay. And for, for us, it took three months just because there was a moment where, you know what I mean? Joel uh, was available and Nick was available. Um, and it was uh, amazingly, you know, we had to understand how to do all this LED stuff, how to do the driving, there's a lot of technology we had to learn for this film. Uh, most uh, dramatically was the LED volume. And um, yeah, it was uh, an amazing experience because it's like in May of last year, I didn't know I'm shooting a film. And then in July, I was already shooting. It was like that. It was insane. It happened very fast. This is the sign of a miracle. Yes. And this movie has a very deep meaning because what I've learned is that it's sometimes better to be moving than stationary. For example, it is when the car is stationary that the danger arise in the parking when it when they encounter a police officer and in also other scenes this can be directed connected to real life and a lot of philosophy behind it mm. yeah um you know the in in this film um uh, it's kind of, um, uh, again, I, I, I see it, it it's, a, it's unlike my other films, it's very, it's a genre script, like it's very much, you know, uh, a thriller with, you know, the guy coming from your past, getting into your car and the two guys kind of working it out. Um, um, and we, and the process was very much uh, actually hearing the actors and because Nick was kind of driving the movie, Nick's character is driving the movie, Nick, Nick was, you know, his, you know, his input on the script and the kind of shit that he brought. Um, I mean, the first meeting with Nick that I had, the first call, he said, 
you know, I uh, I spied on you a little bit, and I saw that you have a a, a you know a PhD in philosophy, and I I, I want to tell you that in this film I want to get metaphysical, I want to get ontological, I want to get you know, and I was like, yeah, let's do it, and he's like, and he's like, it's like Milton, it's like the guy is coming from a different realm. And I said, yes, exactly. And I even kind of put some lines of Milton in the script. Like, it's even in the trailer. Like he says, better to reign in hell. You know, it's Milton. So it's like we kind of played with, you know, these kind of ideas and with this idea of, uh, again, within a genre script, you know, Nick's character is kind of a mix between uh, somebody coming from another realm, you know, like some evil entity coming from another realm and a Vegas entertainer, you know what I mean? With the red jacket, you know what I mean? And that's, that's kind of the, um, those are the two things that kind of we put together, you know, and a lot of it also came from him. Like he's so creative. He has just ideas. Like he's, his mind is like, you know, for weeks before production, he just comes up with ideas all the time and you have to kind of, you know, manage it. And Yuval Adler, was it a metaphysical choice to name the character without first name? For example, we have the passenger, the driver, and I am sure and convinced that if the car was an actual character yeah. credited, you would call it the engine. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. No, that that was in the script already, and I always liked it. That it's like the passenger, the driver. That's it. They're just there, you know. They're just their role. You know, you can say there's something existential about it. Like a person is just their job, their role, what they do. That's who they are. You know what I mean? So this guy is the passenger. That's it. You know what I mean? Um, and I like it. Um, um, but yeah, there is something, again, there's something very simple about this film, which I really like this kind of, you know, the past coming for you, the Nick's character is kind of a joker, a devil, um, you know what I mean? But also a man in pain, uh, he's the passenger, this guy is the driver. It's all kind of very, it's drawn with not a lot of, um, um, you know, grays or shades. It's just primary colors, like boom, 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 boom. And I really like that. And also that's how we shot it, if you noticed, you know what I mean? The colors of the film are red, blue, black, you know what I mean? Like, that's it. It has very specific looks, you know what I mean? Like, night outside Vegas, driving, diner, which is also red, like Nick's hair and the jacket. It's all very primary color-y, you know? I like it a lot, Yuval Adler. We can also add that we are all one seat away to be whether the driver or the passenger. This is a great metaphor. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think this idea of your past coming to get you is a, is a deep idea. You know, that, like that something from your past is coming for you. We all have something, you know. And I, and, I, and I like that aspect of it. On one side, Yuval Adler, this feature film um, is very unique compared to your other uh, piece of, pieces of art. But on the other side, I can see some similarities. 
concerning the car, the weapon, attach, attached to another movie called The Secrets. We keep, there is some similarities. Yeah, I mean, there's actually plot similarities because, you know, it's about a guy that says, you know, it's about identity. It's you, it's you, it's you. No, it's not me, it's not me. You know what I mean? It has that element, <laughs> right? In both films. Me and John were laughing about it. It's like, okay, isn't it? We said, yeah, I told him, yeah, it's the same, but don't worry, we'll do it very different. You know, we'll do it a completely different way. And it's like, and, and it's, it is a very different movie. Um, and again, the plot for me was... Uh, in the in in both of them like it was um secondary you know it was more the themes and the style and the performance i mean secret to keep for me was about the performance like i didn't you know it was like i just i liked you know it's like to get the performance from the actors and to work with these actors and 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 here it was also the actors but also the style the themes the visual you know schema that we did there that kind of stuff probably Yuval Adler that we never saw the passenger and Maya Stowey in the same room it can explain a lot of things <laughs> exactly both of them say to Joel it's you Nick and Numi Nick, Nick, Nicholas Cage and Numi Rapace should come together and both grab Joel and say it's you and he's like it's not me you know absolutely and Yuval Adler you just mentioned before that you bought the actual story and script yeah. from a director writer and I feel that you included some of your favorite songs I am talking, for example, about fears become wishes, a music that is opening uh, the feature film, but also, for example, Without Your Love, a song by Jimmy Radcliffe. Can you tell us a little bit more about those musical inspirations? Yes, I mean, actually, uh, the soundtrack of this film was a particular obsession of mine. So there's a few things that uh, <laughs> that uh, I never had it with any other film that I had like, and I and we had the least money to do anything here. I ended up paying for some stuff myself, <laughs> but it was like um, the the fears become wishes. It's 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 uh, it's very interesting. Also, Radcliffe. The way when you don't have money in a movie, they say, okay, we can't pay for big tracks, right? But here's a pool and they give you 10,000 files of all these and whatever that are cheap. That are like $1,500 they write or $1,000 or whatever. And they say, you have to pick from those. So I actually found Fears Become Wishes. I never heard of this uh, artist. <laughs> I, I heard it in a pool like that. And I and I and, and these songs you have to understand mostly they are so generic they are songs that are horrible they're manufactured they're like and and you sit there I was on a plane from Vegas actually and I was listening okay no 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 and suddenly I hear fears without becomes wishes like oh my god this is such a special song and her voice and it's like so um, uh, you know what I mean like I was I was really impressed by this wait I'm looking uh, I'm trying to see if I can. No, I can't find it. Anyway, so so I I I I 
I liked it so much that we actually opened and closed the film for, uh, with it, but it's not a song that I knew. It's a song that I found in a pile of 10,000 songs, which is very strange. Also the Jimmy Radcliffe that you're saying. It's one of these songs, he's a great artist, but for some reason, you know, a lot of artists from this era cost $10,000 and he cost, he was cheap. I don't know why. And again, it was fantastic. But again, it takes time to find him. Like you have to listen to 10,000 things. And then there's like two other big songs that we actually bought for big money. Um, and one is the opening song, Scott Walker, which is amazing. I love that song. The old man's uh, back again, you know, the old man's back, you know, and it's like, I love that song. And again, it was a big fight to convince everybody that we need to buy it and to get a price on it and whatever, because Scott Walker is Scott Walker. And then, um, and then, um, Alan Vega in the diner this song that kind of all the action scene at the end of the diner, it's like an eight minute piece. I bought, again, I, I, I loved, I knew the minute, I knew this song for many years. I always wanted to, Fat City, I always wanted to use it. And I put it there from the beginning of the cuts, like the very first cut, I put it there. And it became so much part of the movie that the producers couldn't, ima even the producers who don't want to pay for music, they were like, I, we can't imagine that part with it, without it. And this song was expensive, you know? So these two songs we bought. And then there's this Israeli artist, uh, Charlie Magira, who does this rockabilly, old, like very Americana style rockabilly um, uh, guitar type stuff that's very special. We bought one song from that. And then there was the whole saga of getting Nick to dance to I Alive the, the Nightlife right which you saw uh that was the whole thing nick wanted to <laughs> uh nick wanted i mean we were talking about doing a 17 song nick suddenly closed on this song he was like let's do that one and it was too expensive and then he chipped in and i chipped in and everybody whatever and then we bought that so the whole soundtrack was a whole saga on this film and i'm very proud of this soundtrack the songs that you mentioned the other two or three that i mentioned and the it's nick's song for dancing it was like it's a great soundtrack. And then we had a composer who did an amazing soundtrack for the film uh, score that's like very, you know, kind of kooky, kind of weird, kind of not just an action thriller, but like as if getting into Nick's head, you know, uh, again, took time to, to, to kind of figure out how to do it, you know, and he's, and he's, um, uh, he's a guy I worked with in another film, Bethlehem, my first film I worked with him. And he's a, he's a musician and a DJ from Israel, actually. He's an Israeli guy. He was in Israel, I was in New York. We worked on it like that. And um, uh, yeah, a lot of investment in the soundtrack of this film. Absolutely. Absolutely, Yuval Adler. And the music and the song uh, in particular might be uh, cheap, as you just mentioned, but something that is not cheap and not generic is the immersive cinematic experience that you created in what I can call this box of steel with wheels with a lot of different um, scale of footage. Can you tell us a little bit more about the craft and the art of filming this car 
Yeah, that was um, that was its own. I mean, first of all, in this film, we had like about the film is short. It's like 90 minutes, which means it's 85 minutes with titles. So it's 85 minute film. And I think 35 minutes out of it were in the car. So it's like 40 percent or something. And we decided to do it on an LED volume on a great location stage in Vegas called View. Um, and uh, but it's very, I mean, this is new technology and it's hard to, to get this kind of thing to work, to wrap the car inside those giant LED screens and to make it like, and to shoot outside, you know, and plates for what should be projected around the car and how to get the reflections and how to cut it with the stuff outside. That was very, very hard. And... And not a lot of people know, you know, it's like we didn't know how to do it. Me and my DP, we had to learn how to do it. Also, the studio itself is a new studio. It was new to them, too. So it was like the month and a half before the shoot, we were like um, going crazy, trying to learn how to use this tool, which is this LED. Again, the LED stage, what's called an LED volume, is a foot, 20 foot wraparound wall, 20 foot high wraparound wall. You know, it's huge. Like you're like in Times Square and you put the car in the middle of this thing and you and you project the the road and whatever they should be, the environment that should be inside, you project it in the LED and then the light of the LED is so strong that it creates the reflection and it creates the reflection on their faces and that's why it looks so real as opposed to like a green screen where you add the background later and then there's no connection between their faces and the background. Here the background actually <laughs> lights them, you know. And my DP, Steve Holleran, was amazing. He also added, like, you know, a lot of lights on them. So we really stylized the driving, you know, the, um, the effect of being in the car in that studio. Um, very quickly, we learned how to do it for very cheap. We, we were a low-budget film. And it was actually, um, um, you know... Um, um, I, I, one of the, for me, learning how to work on this LED was one of the things I'm, I most cherish about this film. I mean, I think it's a great technology and there's a lot of stuff. The next film, I'm, I'm, the next thing I'm writing, I'm actually trying to use uh, also this technology, you know, an LED volume. The LED volume helped you a lot, Yuval Adler, because it gave uh, a lot of uh, realism to the scenes but one location uh, that is real is located at 1537 North Boulder Highway in the city of Anderson in the state of Nevada. I am talking about a, a gas station. At <laughs> uh, the gas station or the diner? Which one? I am talking about the gas station, not the road high house diner. Uh, how do you know the address of it? That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's all, I mean, we shot it all where, I mean, we kind of imagine where if somebody took somebody to Boulder City from Vegas, where they would drive. And we actually did the drive. So 
in Anderson, this is where it should have been. You know, I never knew what the what the hell Anderson is. Like, you know what I mean? I if I went to Vegas, it was Vegas. I never knew the suburbs. I never knew all this. So for me, it was like a whole new world. But like, yeah, we 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 were in that gas station. We the Roadhouse Diner was really a rundown place that used to be called the Roadhouse Diner that we kind of rebuilt as a set. You know, inside, and um, yeah. There was uh, all kind of, there was something very real about it, which I loved because I did this film co called The Operative about, um, you know, with Diane Kruger and Martin Freeman about an, uh, an Isra uh, how the Mossad, the Mossad recruiting a girl, a woman who is not Israeli, who is uh, played by Diane, um, to go to um, Tehran. So some of the film was supposedly taking place in Tehran. So we had to build Tehran and fake Tehran and you know what I mean? Like, and, and it's so hard to fake a place. But when you actually, also in Bethlehem, I had to fake that I'm here when I'm not there. But here, we didn't have to fake any, anything. Like everywhere that we were supposed to be, we were. You know what I mean? So it's like you just shoot and it's right. You know, it's such, it's such a pleasure. All of these precedents and all of those uh, knowledge that you learned, uh, Yuval Adler, are now making you ready for a new project and a new feature film, a movie that is adapting a book called The, the Book of Job that I am having right now next to me. Can you tell us a little bit more about this upcoming project? Yeah, this is a dream project of mine. Um, I always wanted to make some kind of dramatic. Um, I was obsessed with the Book of Job forever. Also, I even taught a class once when I was teaching philosophy about the metaphysical reading of the Book of Job, whatever that means, like something about, because the Book of Job is fundamentally a metaphysical book about, you know, fundamental questions about the moral order of the universe, the place of man in the world, the relationship between man and God, whatever. So, so the idea of doing something dramatic with the book of Job was there all along. And suddenly, and I thought about it, it should be something between a film and theater. But then when I worked on the LED um, volume stage, I realized it should be on an LED volume stage where it's kind of like theater, like there is a stage, but there is this, uh, you know, LED around it where you can project stuff and make it big, like, you know, in the Metropolitan Opera production. And I'm doing that with a kind of a metafictional approach where it's like you see a group of people making the Book of Job, um, um, you know, and um, at the same time see the actual text and the story of the book of Job enacted. So it's kind of a, you know, like the, there was a movie once, French Lieutenant's Wife, if you remember, or French Lieutenant's Woman, I think. Pinter wrote it. It was like, um, you know, where Meryl Streep and Jeremy Irons, and you saw them in the Victorian era, era and you saw them making the film. You know, you cut in between. So I'm doing something like that. Um, and um, yeah. And uh, I'm, tr I'm trying to actually do it in exactly the same stage in Vegas, um, you know, with, um, uh, with the LED screen. Uh, so it's a very challenging, and that's actually a very philosophical film about uh, 
it's a film about filmmaking it's a film about the, the it kind of involves all the themes uh, that the book of job touches on um, it's a very it's a film that deals with ideas in some ways uh, unlike you know this film that was much more visceral um, uh, it's very different but I but I felt that this film in in a weird way is open open the gate to the other film you know Let's it see. is very inspiring to see that some movies opened as you just said other doors for upcoming projects because all of your filmography the Adler filmography is strongly connected and I can feel that this adaptation of the book of Job took a long time for you to think and write starting from anxiety and wonder in the book of Job which is a talk that you gave uh, at a continental philosophy seminar and I read that in the last paragraph of that talk you are concluding by saying that the book of Job as enacting this movement from anxiety, from the day-wording of Job, from him as the naked that is and has to be. Can you explain uh, the meaning and also discuss about this very specific talk that you gave? Um, yeah, that's from the period I told you that I was kind of in, uh, very interested in the book of Job intellectually. Like I was, I mean, I was teaching it, I was, you know, studying it, I was uh, connecting it. Actually, that in that specific talk, what I did was connect it to some aspects of the philosophy of Heidegger, who is kind of the person I'm um, um, studying now and, and um, I'm interested in now. And the idea is that the book of Job, um, the book of Job starts, if you remember, by God and the Satan speaking and kind of in the divine court and saying, well, you know, there is kind of an anxiety in the divine court. Suddenly God, and not anxiety we're talking about here, but in, in the quote that you said, but there's a confusion in the divine court. Suddenly God is confused. God and the Satan are confused. They don't understand, they, or they suddenly ask a question that was never asked. Like, why are people, pi are people good because you make it worthwhile for them to be good? Or are they truly good? Okay, are they good because, I mean, you know, if God is a reward punishment mechanism, then yes, I'll be good because you reward me. But, you know, suddenly the Satan is saying, you know, it's like he tells God, well, you're paying them to be good. Let's see what happens if you stop paying them, you know. So there's a confusion up there. And so they need to do a test. You know, that's what you do when you're confused. You do a test. So this job is like a book in the genre of let's do it. Let's do tests with the humans. Let's uh, let's uh, test the humans. Right. So they bring these horrible catastrophes on Job and horrible like he loses everything including his children it could his body is you know covered with boils it's like it's sadistic you know what they do to job in order to see if he's gonna curse 
Now, the description of how they take stuff from Job, like they take first his, you know, his, uh, the things, you know, his car, you know, his cattle and his riches, and then, you know, his home is burnt or whatever. I don't remember. And then his the, the children died, and then his body, you know what I mean? It's like they close in on him, right? And you ask, and then what remains after this? In, with Job. What remains is that part of him that can ask why, okay? That he wants to make sense of it. It's like the, the thing that Job wants to do is to make sense of what happened. And in that sense, the author of the book of Job says that men, and I mean men in the general anthropos way, you know, but, but human being, is... Um, um, fundamentally, when you strip everything down, is the, the, the thing that makes a person or the human human is the attempt to make sense. And that's also what Heidegger says. Okay? And Heidegger says, Heidegger actually describes in Being in Time a state he calls anxiety where we, the world stop making, usually we're involved with shit in the world, we're doing stuff, we're absorbed in stuff, we forget ourselves, and then in the state of anxiety, all our projects in the world, according to Heidegger, stop making sense to us. And we kind of become just this thing that, that is trying to make sense and can't. And this is Job's situation. So I, my thing was that to say, look, Job's, the book of Job is actually kind of a dramatic enactment of Heideggerian anxiety. <laughs> just like, for example, you can say that... Uh, you know, Oedipus, uh, Freud would say that Oedipus is a dramatic enactment of the Oedipal drama inside the family. Okay? Like, in the family, the infant wants to blah, blah, mother, father, blah, blah, right? And in Oedipus, they make it real that he actually kills blah, blah, okay? And the same thing, Job is kind of... And Heidegger also has this idea that you know, anxiety is important because this deworlding that happens to you in anxiety, that the world stops making sense to you, is actually where you get that sense of wonder, you know, where uh, uh, that is the beginning of philosophy and thinking, that you wonder that things are, that things are what they are. Okay, there's something that this anxiety, this existential anxiety that he talks about is... A, a crucial, a, a fundamental kind of um, uh, attunement, a mood that 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 con that shows you how the world uh, that 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 reveals to you the world as wondrous. It's like how, how you know, as opposed to just like being absorbed in it and not noticing it. So, and in the book of Job, you have if you look at if you take this experiment that God and the Satan do. With Job, this kind of deworld, this aggressive, literal deworlding that they take everything he has and bring him into this naked person that's trying to make sense. Then what happens at the end is the theophany, the so-called theophany, the, the meaning the appearance of God, where God talks to him about the wonder of the world. So in Job, there is this movement between anxiety, a metaphor for anxiety, and wonder, and also that's kind of the fundamental Heideggerian movement. So I was like, that was my lecture. I was like, look. Heidegger is doing exactly what Job was enacting in this story. He's kind of connecting this deworlding of anxiety with wonder.
that was my talk. If you want it in like uh, four minutes, I don't know how long it took. I am looking forward to see that adaptation of uh, the book of Job. And I truly feel that uh, this is going to be an intense match uh, between those uh, two layers of narration, yeah. between the present moment and also uh, telling the story uh, in the past as it is written, a match as powerful as the one between Coco Gauff and <laughs> yeah. Arina Sabalenka. Right. Thank you very much, Yuval Adler. Thank you so much, Victor. That was so much fun. I really appreciate it.